welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Back from the Abyss is about understanding the how and why of psychological and psychiatric suffering and healing. Why do people try to hurt or kill themselves or fall into addiction? How do people heal from trauma or bipolar disorder or OCD? And in this episode, why do women get abortions? And how do they cope with the process and the aftermath? We can't know someone's story until we hear it. It's so very easy and even profoundly human and normal for us to assume, project, interpret, and judge. But until we have actually listened to what someone has gone through, we just don't know. The idea for today's episode came from my patient, Sarah, who tells the first story today. As she was coming out of a ketamine treatment earlier this year, she broke down crying and opened up about something that she'd never shared with me, an abortion she had had many years ago, and the complicated mix of relief, confusion, guilt, and shame that had plagued her ever since. She asked if she and I might do an episode on abortion, and I said, well, well, let's talk about it when you aren't high on ketamine. But that next week I called her, and we began to brainstorm what this episode would look like. So today we present Abortion in Three Acts, Three women, three stories, that are in many respects totally different, but yet at a core level, they're the same. Three women who did what they thought they had to do, mostly alone, mostly in secrecy, mostly not speaking up about it until now. Abortion in Three Acts, Act One, Sarah. So I was 17. I had just turned 17. And I had been dating my boyfriend at the time for about six months. And we were pretty careless <laughs> sexually. Um, had actually already taken several pregnancy tests. Um, didn't really know what that would mean if it turned up that we were pregnant. Um, but then June of 97, got the positive pregnancy test. And it was late June. It might have almost been July at that time, I had just begun a second year term of being in a leadership position in a service organization, um, and I was at the leader of the state. Uh, I had been elected to a two-year term. I had just finished like the secondary um, level and now was at the principal leadership level um, and was about to travel the state and talk to girls through the state for the next year, and I turned up pregnant. And I was horrified. There was no way I could be both. And immediately, literally went up to my mom and said, I am pregnant and I need an abortion. And it went pretty fast from there. She, I think within the day, it might have been the same day the next day, was on the phone with the abortion clinic setting up an appointment. And uh, there was a little bit of a wait, like a couple days, I think. And then... Um, we had the appointment for a Thursday to do the first appointment. It felt like from the moment I found out that I was pregnant to when I showed up at the abortion clinic, it was like I had picked the right door, like that I, I made the right choice, that there was no reason to have another conversation. Um, of course, for me, there was a lot of relief because I wasn't going to have to face this uh, embarrassment. Um and I was going to be able to kind of fly under the radar and fix this. And I think I sensed relief in my mom. Um, she didn't 
pressure me. She didn't convince me. She didn't, you know, I just said, I need an abortion and off we went. When we were preparing to go to the clinic, I remember on the phone them saying there might, there might be protesters or there might be people out front. You might have to come through the back door. And I was just kind of curious, like, what's that about? I didn't know. I I didn't know at the time. I don't think how controversial maybe abortion was. And so I kind of had the sense of this was unique just to that day I was showing up or something. It was in, it just didn't make sense to me. When we went in, in the waiting room, I felt like only certain people were allowed. I had the thought that if I had invited the dad, who I never, who I didn't tell at that point, but if I had, I had had him come with me, he wouldn't have been allowed. It was very closed off, uh, rigid about who could be in there. I think maybe only one of my parents could be in there. And then I was taken back to like an exam room and my parents weren't allowed to come with me there. And there was at least two, maybe three nurses doing different things. And at one point they were, you know, they had the ultrasound uh, on my stomach and it clicked for me what was happening and that on this monitor they were looking at was the ultrasound. And I asked if I could see it and they wouldn't let me. And I felt in that moment, like maybe something's wrong. (laughs) Maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I was already in this building that I couldn't get out. There was no going back out the front door. My parents weren't with me. And the only way to the back door was through the procedure. And just remember having a moment of second guessing myself and not the time or the space to be able to make that decision correctly, nor the information, I suppose. So that day, the purpose was to insert the seaweed to help the cervix open. Um, a little bit of a blur to me. It definitely hurt. I I remember not liking having to come back a second time. It just felt like a really big commitment. <laughs> I felt like this is really enduring. And so we went home. Uh, came back the next day, and I honestly, the whole thing is a blur. In the room where the abortion was, there was like this machine next, you know, next to the chair, and I hearing it turn on, and then realizing the reciprocal in it is basically where things were going to be going. And looking back, it's like, well, why couldn't I see the ultrasound, but it's okay that I saw that. And I... I wasn't told as things were happening what was going on. I didn't I didn't know really what was happening. I mean, I knew what what I was doing or what why it was happening, but I didn't understand, you know, a lot of times in medical procedures it's like we're doing this, now we're doing this, now we're doing this and it just wasn't like that. And then afterward I sat in the I guess recovery area for a really long time by myself. My parents weren't there. Um, you know, maybe they checked my blood pressure or whatever, but it just felt really long. Um, and before I left, they said, uh, all right, you might be sad for about a week, if at all, and then things will be back to normal. The abortion happened on a Friday, and Monday I went back to work. And then, you know, by the time that week was over, it went quick. And... uh I, that was it, right? I was supposed to be okay then. 
it was, it was a week was over and I was supposed to be okay. And when, um, moments of kind of grief or sadness or questioning, wondering, worrying, and that first week came up, it was like, oh, it doesn't matter. This is going to be over in a week. I'll just, it's, you know, no big deal. And when it started to come up after that week, it was like, no, 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 <laughs> you don't feel this after the week. You only feel this for a week. And so there's nothing to feel here. And that was it for a very long time, uh, for 17 years. And I would say even in that 17 years, I would say my biggest guilt of the abortion is having no guilt at all. Um, it just seemed like it would probably should be a significant thing, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, it, it saved me from that embarrassment. It did its job. And I went on and I actually married that boyfriend and we had our oldest son, Ethan, who is just an incredible gift. When Ethan was born, I, Ethan's dad and I had his name picked out all through high school. And when he was born, of course, knew his name. And I looked at him and I said, oh my gosh, your name is Joshua. And, but we had already had this name picked out. So he was Ethan. <laughs> and so later than in that 17 years, I, uh, for a moment became Catholic. And for another brief moment was married to a Catholic person who was very extreme pro-life. And I felt very frustrated with him because there was such a lack of compassion. And I felt very strongly that what was most important in an abortion is that Women and men, girls and boys, are educated, educated about their sexuality, educated about their dignity, educated about their mental health, educated about the process, like not all at once, but just like, let's build a foundation that sets people up for success. I don't think anybody wants to have an abortion. So let's help people understand all the things at play and help people make an informed choice. Like That's the best we can do. We can't change people's minds. We can't wag our finger in their face, but what we can do is help them be informed. And so as I was saying this to him, I realized I needed to maybe put my words into action. And so I wanted to volunteer at a pregnancy center, which at the time, my understanding was that it was a pregnancy center that counseled in all three choices, birth, adoption, and abortion. And it wasn't uh, swayed in either one. It just wanted to provide this service. I have since later found out that's not the case. So that's disappointing. I never ended up volunteering, but to be able to volunteer, they asked if I had had an abortion and I of course said yes. And they said, well, you have to go through this healing process, this healing group. And I'm like, well, whatever, like I'll oblige with your request, but I don't need to heal. Like I'm, I'm fine, whatever. But I go to this, uh, healing group and I show up and there's six other women there. And it was in that first night of that group probably had the most impact on me than the rest of the time. I mean, there was, there was importance, but it was that there were these six other women that had similar lives as mine since their abortion. They had depression and anxiety. Doesn't have to match abortion. They had rage and anger, reactive issues that didn't make sense, um, insecurities just, and, and I know all these things are common, but it was realizing these, this isn't just me. Like there's a common thread here. 
More importantly, though, what was so clear to me was nobody talks about this. It dawned on me like this is the first time I'm in a room with like people that I'm not close to talking about this. This is the first time I've ever heard of somebody else telling me they had an abortion. Nobody talks about this. Where, why aren't we sharing about this? If it's so normal, if it's so okay, why aren't we talking about it? So those were like, that was kind of the first doorway into a healing process. And I did, I did have some experience of healing in that, in that group. Um, one of them was they asked us to name the baby, which is a little presumptuous, I suppose, depending on where you're coming from. But um, I did, I named the baby and I named him Joshua because I think he might've been Ethan. <laughs> so I named him Joshua. My mom always wanted us to name our kids, uh, Samuel Alexander, because with the last name, the initials would be Sam. So that always brought her so much joy to think about. And none of us gave that to her. So I decided he could be Joshua Alexander and my last name at the time of being married and now even the last initials M and so jam, I guess. <laughs> so his name's Joshua Alexander. That's been very special to have a name for him. Been very special, very open about it with my kids. Uh, Ethan knows that he may be as <laughs> Joshua and Joshua's Ethan. They're all very supportive. He's very much a part of our family. Um, my little kids too, they, it's, it's important to them and they understand um, and I like to think that, you know, if I hadn't had the abortion, I wouldn't have these three beautiful men in my life that um, really fulfill me. So I'm I'm thankful in that way that I have these kids as a result of, of that choice. Intend and surrender, create and flow. I am acting in a show that I wrote. Help me trust, help me to grow, let me surrender to the beautiful now, let me surrender to the beautiful now. I went through that healing process. I had a therapist at the time um, who was wonderful, but uh she didn't believe he was a baby, right? So she helped me the best she could. Tried to do some work there. Didn't have much of an impact. I, I did started EMDR about six, five or six years ago. And I might have come up there, but not a significant impact. But when I started on my psychedelic healing journey, didn't occur to me that the abortion might be something that came up. There was enough healing in all of those years. And I think it was getting past the no guilt at all. Once I got past that, I'm like, oh, I've dealt with this, right? Okay, I've dug up what was buried. I dealt with it. Name the baby, <laughs> like open about it. I've dealt with it. And so didn't expect that to be a source of anything. I know going into the psychedelic um, healing, I've had some guilt or reflection that, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to have access to this medicine um, and privileged enough to be able to do it because I'm not somebody that was at war. I'm not somebody that ha had sexual trauma or just these major significant things. 
and I, I felt like I was going in to heal trauma that was like death by a thousand paper cuts, like these little things in my life that somehow had much more deeper rooted thing, uh, holding on me than some significant one-time event trauma or, you know, multiple event trauma. And so I felt like I was getting to use this amazing medicine for something so little. And so my intention going in started with MDMA and it was to just, what's in there? Why am I so angry? Why am I, and I'm not an angry person, but why am I have such reactive anger? Why do I lose my shit so fast and so easily and with people I care so much about? Why do I hurt people? And it's been a journey. <laughs> On my third MDMA session, we were going, you know, start the session and it's like, is it happening? Is that it? Am I in there? What's going on? And I starting the session and I realized, okay, I'm down the certain path of this, another, you know, small paper cut in my life that maybe I have something I've held on to or whatever. And that little path had a fork in it that was the abortion. But even as I'm going down that path and aware that that fork is there, I didn't think this was going towards the abortion. I'm on this other path. And wham, the abortion was there. And as soon as we hit that fork in the road, I was wailing and wailing and bawling, like inconsolable. Um, I had never had that much expression of grief from the abortion. Um, I didn't know it was there. I didn't know it was there. And it had been there 24 years. 24 years. And so we worked through that, and for the next several hours, I just got into this rhythmic moan, and it was beautiful, and it was just allowed the space to what I think we realized was birth my child. It was such a labor of love, and it wasn't just mine, it was the therapist's, and just the space they created for me to do that and I mean sit there for hours and just go through that it was, it was so beautiful I'm so thankful for that experience it felt productive it felt less disconnected right the no guilt at all it was this procedure I did when I was 17 and it's over it was over and now I was involved now I was part of it I was allowed to be part of it So then, um, wow, it was so profound. It was so great. And it was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm doing this. This, this, wow, this really uncovered something. And about two months later, I did my first psilocybin treatment. And I wouldn't have expected it to come up because I had just dealt with it, right? And so that my intention going into that psilocybin treatment was, what is my connection with the world? Like, I'm figuring out myself, but I want to know about my roots to everything else. How am I connected? And really incredible experience. Uh, just all of this is so special. And in that experience, though, there was a candle in the room. And that candle, in the circle of things that I put around me that were like my circle of life and my connection to the world, at the helm of it was this candle that represented Joshua. And it wasn't a... um 
it wasn't a dramatic experience, so to speak. It was just a very comforting one that here I am. I'm part of your circle. I'm part of your connection. I'm part of this universe. Like I'm here. It's okay. I'm here. And that was very special. It wasn't as dramatic as the first one, but it was a touch point and it was really cool. Then since we agreed to do this podcast or talk about doing this podcast, uh, I have since had another psilocybin treatment. And again, <laughs> wouldn't expect to <laughs> see, find anything because my intention going into that treatment was, uh, I had written in my journal shortly before, what about me? What am I hiding from me? What am I hiding from myself that I, I'm not uncovering? What is, what is, what is still causing this reactive anger? Although getting better, why is it still happening? What's there? And in that, and in that session, it, it was clear to me I needed to stop digging. <laughs> Nothing is wrong with me. You know, going through all these journeys and there was a point that, bam, there he was again. And it's not like in a physical presence, but it was like this energy. And right before it happened I, in this journey, I was uh, feeling like I didn't want to go do what everybody else did. And then I was trapped. And I, I said out loud, there has to be another choice. There has to be another choice. And I like looked over and then that's where this energy that was Joshua was there. And I was like, what are you doing here? (laughs) I didn't expect to see you. And it was like, I'm everywhere. I'm in everything. And it just repeated that over and over. I'm everywhere. I'm in everything. And I am your trauma. Not I am your trauma. And the abortion is your trauma. And it was so eye-opening to me that here I've been digging and digging and I feel like just screwing all around. And here's this pillar of this trauma that I wasn't even recognizing as trauma. Um, I know when I went back, actually, last night was reading through kind of your notes of preparation. You had said the abortion trauma and I missed it. And maybe it's so obvious to other people. I think... I just felt like after a week, I was fine. (laughs) It's not trauma. (laughs) And so, yeah, here I am. I'm in everything. The abortion is your trauma. And I got to spend the next few hours just experiencing him and uh, holding him in a sense and just being with him. And he wasn't this baby. He wasn't... uh, you know, this baby that I could, it was an energy that I could communicate with, a wise, present energy. And I, the, the thought, you know, it's, it's thought, it's not like we we're verbally talking back and forth. We we're like exchanging this energy of communication. And it was, you know, I killed you. And uh, how do I bring you back to life? And it, you know, me and like this despair and the response is you didn't kill me. There, there was no death. I just went back to where I already was. Like I'm energy. I'm, I just went back like everything. I'm fine. <laughs> I just didn't come into like a human life, but I didn't die. You didn't kill me. And that was so healing. <laughs> that was so healing. It made everything okay. It made feeling grateful for my kids okay, because even though I've been thankful for that gift, 
It's like, well, I killed you so I could have a three. <laughs> it just made it okay. It made it that the choice I made for myself, even if it wasn't the right one, by any, for whatever reason, that it was okay. I didn't cause harm to another by my choice. I can trust the medicine of this moment. She knows just how I need to grow. I didn't know that 25 years later I'd still be suffering. It was a very easy choice in the moment. It was it was so easy. It fixed everything. Got me right back on track. And it's been hard. It's been really hard. It's affected my life and relationships. And nobody told me. And I deserved. I deserved to know doesn't mean that I would have changed my choice. But I deserve to know. And I have this fear that others don't know. When I had the abortion and remembering they had said about the protesters and not really understanding the controversy and after the abortion in that week, I do remember having the thought of, well, if there's people that don't like this, I don't, nobody can say what they would do unless they're in that situation. And we know that because there's people that are <laughs> very pro-life that we find out have abortions, right? Like we know that when people are faced with the, that choice, that it's a hard choice. And I don't think we can I don't think we can say what we would do in somebody else's shoes unless we're in those shoes ourselves. Yeah, adoption crossed my mind, but no way. Holy cow, how hard. Oh, how hard that would be. How talk about grueling. Oh, just heart-wrenching. Literally ripping the heart out of your body. That just would be impossible. I can tell you 25 years later, I wish that was the choice I made because I think, at least for me, this was the hardest choice not to make, but to live with because I don't get to potentially reconnect with him as an adult. I have <laughs> through the medicine, but you know, I missed, I missed that, that opportunity. My joy lives on the other side of running from this moment breathing in breathing out nothing else matters but being here now nothing else matters but being here now Intend and surrender, create and flow. I am acting in a show that I wrote. 
Help me trust. Help me to grow. Let me surrender to the beautiful now. Let me surrender to the beautiful now. Act two. Karen. I guess it goes all the way back to 1989. Um, coming back from India after being there for 11 months, um, being really disjointed coming back to the United States, a lot of culture shock. And I was diagnosed pretty quickly with di- dysentery of several kinds, bacillary dysentery, and I also had Jardia. Um, I'd been quite healthy the whole time I was in India, but, uh, and then started taking medication to get better from that. And I didn't realize that it caused my birth control pills to stop working. I was in a relationship that I was, I had gone to India to leave essentially. And I came back and had trouble leaving it. So I was still with this person who was abusive and manipulative and jealous And I found out that I was pregnant basically after kind of suddenly losing all motivation. Um, I was one of those people who was always busy, who had all kinds of things going on. I was coming back from this year of excitement, um, and I just couldn't hardly move. I was like, okay, I got to go to the doctor. Something's really wrong. So I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you're pregnant, and you're, you're 13 weeks pregnant. Like, you're not insignificantly pregnant. Uh, and so it was just that moment where there was no question in my mind that this was not the man that I wanted to be with. I did not want to have a child with this person. If I stayed with this person, I was probably going to get really hurt because one of his classic moves was just this control move. He had put me in a bathroom one time when I was on my way to work and he took the, he stole the doorknob of the bathroom He basically locked me in the bathroom so that I couldn't get to work on time, which was super stressful for me because I was managing a fancy restaurant and I was so focused on being the good employee and he knew that and he just kind of hated it. He wanted me to put him first all the time. He got really jealous at a party one night when I talked to another guy. When we got home from the party, he threw me across the room and smashed me into the wall and then walked over when I said I was going to call the police and walked over and yanked. You know, that was back in the days of telephones being in the wall. Um, yanked the phone out of the wall. Um, I was terrified that I was going to get really hurt again and again and again. And, you know, so you ask the question, why was I with him? I couldn't figure out how to get away from him. We lived together. We had, you know, all these ways in which our lives were entwined and it was going to take time. And being pregnant with his child was not on the list of ways in which I could escape. So, and he did not want me to have an abortion when I told him. Um, he was very, very, very opposed. And um, I had to pick up and, you know, just decide I was going to do this. And I had to cross picket lines to get to this clinic that I went to, you know, so probably 20 people standing there with pictures of fetuses and, and yelling at me that I was a murderer and, 
you know, so that was a, a huge emotional rally, as you can imagine, to get across the picket lines. And then he decided he wanted to come with me, which I was not pleased about. And he showed up, I picked him up in my car and he showed up and, um, just reeked of alcohol. He'd obviously gotten himself just completely shit faced the night before. So next morning drunk, he stunk to high heaven, which was of course for a 13 week pregnant woman or at that point, probably 14 weeks. Um, I was, you know, I just couldn't even be in the car with him. It was disgusting. So yeah, it was just a morning of many memories. And it also, I remember was right in the same week that the Berlin wall was falling, you know, so they were tearing it down in Berlin and it just felt like this crazy moment in time where I was just grabbing for some future that I thought looked a heck of a lot better than the one I was standing in right then. So I made it through the procedure my mom had helped me, you know, she, she recognized what was going on. I was able to tell her, which felt good at the time. After much evaluation over time, I realized that she just simply did not want the stigma attached to having her 19, 20, I guess I was 20 at that point, year old daughter in a single parenting situation with a child. That was her motivation. She wasn't emotionally supportive. But she got me a hotel room. So after the procedure, I was able to go to this hotel room and just be in my own space and really process. It was excruciatingly painful. And so anybody who thinks women just do this willy-nilly has clearly never experienced it because I would never choose to go back into that set of sensations again. It's incredibly painful um, all of this contraction happening that was so intense and and it was incredibly emotional. I was crying and grieving, but of course the world doesn't really let you grieve, so you can't grieve with other people. You're grieving in complete isolation because I valued and wanted to be a mom. There's no question in my mind that I was destined for motherhood, but not with that partner, not in that year not in that situation. So it was really, it was emotionally, physically painful. It was a lot of, um, it was a lot of independence that I had not yet really learned at that age. So how to come up with the money, how to make sure that I chose the right provider, how to make sure the provider was going to do a, a good procedure, because this was the kind of procedure where you inserted a laminaria. Um, so first cervical dilation, and then the next day you came back and had the procedure. It wasn't simple. It wasn't like taking methotrexate, misoprostol, something like that. Not that that's even simple, and I don't want to cast any sort of simplicity on what is really still emotional and intense for other women. But it was surgical, and it was um, multi-day, and protesters, and a lot of things like that. So yeah, I just recovered and kind of woke up. Like that was the moment of my waking up. And wow, like the swords came out. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're gone to the guy because he needed to be gone. It's e easier for me to tell the story now because he passed away three years ago um, from prostate cancer. And 
you know, I don't worry about him jumping on there and getting, not only getting angry at me, but like potentially being dangerous to me and hearing the story told. And yeah, I just changed everything in my life. I got an apartment. I um, really worked hard to grab my independence. And it was so ultimately, it was a very galvanizing experience for me. Do what you have to do, say what you have to say, feel your heart and trust your soul, they know the way, follow what feels good, those subtle little clues, listen to your belly that is always speaking to you. There's a waterfall of wisdom at your fingertips. If you would only reach a little further in. Everything you're looking for, the pieces of your puzzle, all the love you seek is right there at your feet. Maybe two years before, maybe a little bit longer, I had been through a rape situation, pretty intense, awful, traumatic rape situation um, that had left me really struggling to find my self-esteem, my independence. I was scared all the time. It's part of why this partner swooped in and kind of made, um, made me feel safe in the early days of the relationship was because he was so possessive and so much wanted to take care of me. Um, but the rape had left me in such a depleted state. And then the abortion left me in a further depleted state. And then I kicked into survival mode. I kicked into, uh, I'm good. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry about me mode, which is so common. I think with women who've been through that kind of sexual and relationship trauma. So the healing journey didn't start at all, actually, right then. Until several years later when I was working in political organizing. So I, I immediately left college and went to work for um, an abortion rights action league organization because I was so horrified by just the stigma attached to everything that I had done, the financial impacts, the the how how hard it was in general and I thought I want to work on this and make this better and easier um, and this was the time at the time when doctors were being killed for doing abortions things like that so I immediately went into organizing which you would think might have been part of the healing but really it just made me angry and I was constantly angry constantly filled with vitriol you know reading every newspaper I could get my hands on and that was not so good for healing. So then it took me going to something called a speak out. It was a, such a memorable moment of, you know, maybe 40 women coming together in a room. And I think this was kind of a thing back in like early 90s, late 80s, where, and it's a little bit like, say, what, you know, Glennon Doyle is doing now with speaking honestly. You could sit in that room and you could tell stories about your life that you couldn't tell in any other environment. And I was able to, for the first time in my life, say to anyone outside of the experience that I had been raped and that I'd had an abortion and talk about how traumatic it had been. And it was as if, you know, the, the floodgates just opened 
I was so full of grief and still lots of plenty of anger, but the anger had, it was like the stages of grief, you know, the anger stage had kind of ebbed and the grieving stage had come on hard. And I felt super lonely because in order to get away from that partner, I had had to get away from basically my entire college community um, and find a new community of people. I had been a cigarette smoker. I had stopped smoking cigarettes. I didn't want to hang out with anybody who smoked cigarettes. Um, I'd really stopped drinking any alcohol. So, you know, I couldn't find people to hang out with who weren't just in full on party mode. So um, I worked really hard to find new people that I could trust and talk to. Um, That helped, helped me. But even then, for many, many years, I never talked about either of those experiences to anyone. It was just not part of my story. Now, I think as a 54-year-old, it's, it's something I speak about publicly. It's something I speak to my children about. I speak to their girlfriends about it. You know, I'm, I'm much more able to put words to it and um, try to bring other people into a sense of confidence about not failing to talk out loud because that's probably where the real healing starts. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you've come to some sort of resolution or completion with it? Yes. I think my, my body came back, you know, so I had the, I had the beautiful experience of having a boyfriend, um, who was really aware of what I'd been through. And it was like he made it his personal mission to sort of bring me back to life. He could tell how beleaguered I was when we met, um, but he saw the spark and he spent, you know, we were not together that long because there was like a five-year age difference. and um, But he really just woke me up and helped me to recognize where the trauma points were in my body and to say, let's, let's work through that. Let's push you past that. Let's try to bring you to a place of comfort with that. And that was, you know, sexual activity that I had literally closed my entire body to. Um, And he also really taught me the principles of Al-Anon, because he was a recovering alcoholic. He'd been a merchant seaman already. He was only 25, I think, when I met him. And he really brought me back to life, which I am so grateful for. I've tried to find him a hundred times to say thank you. I can't find him. But that was, again, part of the healing because you don't realize all the ways in which you've shut yourself down physically um, after the, the physical sense of violation of an abortion. I know I was in that abusive relationship because I wasn't sufficiently believing in my value because of the rape. To bring yourself back from, you know, closing your entire emotional life, because if you open up yourself to feeling the high end, the joys, the happy side, you, to some extent, run the risk of opening the, the Pandora's box of the pain. And so I... I was able to to bring that all back into a sense of vibrancy and joy over the next 10 years. Took took time, um, but I was then able to meet my now husband, who I've been with for 32 years, and um, come to him as a much more whole person and not someone who was living in that place of 
horror. Heaven is on earth in every breath you breathe, anchoring a new vibration, a new way to be. There's a waterfall of wisdom at your fingertips if you would only reach a little further in. I think one of the things that really strikes me about the experience was the extent to which, you know, and I, there's a great Lady Gaga song about, you know, you, until it happens to you is the name of the song. And I listened to that with my kids um, maybe seven or eight years ago. And I just sat them down and I told them the story, both the rape and the abortion. And I said, you know, I really survived something huge because the rape situation, without going into all the gory details, was so, was so terrifying, deeply terrifying, and and such a survival moment. And to not have your nearly adult sons know that story, um, to me, felt like I was not being my full self with them. And they're just these incredible young men. And I was trying to bring them up in a different model of masculinity, as was my husband. You know, we wanted them to be stewards. And so I sat down with them and put that song on. And I said, you know, it's one of the things that I encounter the most in my life is people who think they have a clue what it's like, you know, whether it's legislators or friends or people that I talk to or my father-in-law who says, you just need to put that away. You just need to get over that um, because that's the model he was taught in. My mother, who's like, yeah, I know, I know. You had things happen to you. Okay. You know, and so I was really grateful to be able to go deep with them emotionally and bring them into the loop and make sure that they now know me completely as a person. Everything you're looking for, the pieces of your puzzle, all the love you seek is right there at your feet. And it's up to you to decide Will you stand by the sidelines or join the ride? Stop waiting for someone to give you permission. Only you, only you can make the decision. There's a waterfall of wisdom at your fingertips. If you would only reach a little further in. There's a waterfall of wisdom at your fingertips. Act three, Elizabeth. When you said that you were going to do a podcast on abortion, it just hit me because that is our story. That's my story. That's a story that I feel like we both know and we've both lived with, but we don't share very often. We're not afraid to share it, but it's not one we share very often. And I felt like, you know, with you doing this podcast on stories and and 
with you having hinted at other times that maybe I could do something, this just immediately felt like the right thing to do for so many reasons. And I want to share my story. I imagine it is somewhat different than yours because of some of what the background of it was for me. So I'll just tell my story around this. So with my experience of us at me at 35, you at 33, second pregnancy, we already had a a two-year-old and we got pregnant with the hope of having a second child with having, with growing our family. It was a, a child that was wanted. It was something we did with enthusiasm, with excitement to get pregnant again. But before that story, when I was in college, I had a pretty serious case of pelvic inflammatory disease. And when I had that, they told me at the time that there was a very high chance I would be infertile because it causes a lot of scar tissue with the infection in your uterus. So I kind of always went into, well, went into my adulthood thinking that pregnancy was going to be a big challenge for me, if if maybe not possible. Uh, so that was the background for me. So I think that in some ways maybe protected me from what we had to go through because I already expected so much trouble. And when we had our first child, we did have trouble. <laughs> we got pregnant right away. It was really easy in that regard, which was so surprising to me because, of course, I thought I wasn't going to be able to get pregnant. And we got pregnant really fast. So suddenly there we were, and it was exciting. And then I had a little cold. I was barely even sick, truthfully. And I went to my mid- midwife to have a regular checkup at about, I don't know, maybe 13 weeks. And she said, huh, you're sick and you work with children. Hmm. And she admitted that she had just delivered a, a baby who had been affected by something called cytomegalovirus, CMV. And, and in that experience for her, she delivered a baby that was devastated by this virus, a virus that most people get when they're children, no big deal. But every once in a while, a woman gets it in their first trimester, and the fetus is devastated. Um, And so she was was scared because she had just seen this. And she saw me as sick, and she saw me as working with children, and she said, let's just test you for this. And so she did. And kind of the shocking thing, the thing nobody expected, is that I came back as positive and as first-time exposure. They can tell by your antibodies if you've had it before, and I never had. So, of course, with her recent experience and fear, we went into a lot of fear and a lot of, lot of monitoring of that pregnancy. I didn't know if we were going to if it was going to make it, I didn't know if it did, if we would have a healthy baby. It was scary. It was, it was something I had to just take a step back from and see what happened. And so I did. I kind of learned how to do that. I think first with the pelvic inflammatory disease, thinking I couldn't get pregnant. And then this time thinking, well, this isn't going to last. This isn't going to work. And then it did. You know, that was the amazing thing. We had this amazing daughter. She's great. She's a young adult now. And uh, and all that fear and all that 
monitoring like crazy. You know, it it worked out. And so then there we were with the two-year-old, time to get pregnant again, we decided. And so we did. And again, really fast. So all my fears of infertility, they weren't happening. And we were pregnant, and I, I went in early for an ultrasound again because with that history, they had a, a worry, the history of my pelvic inflammatory disease, they had a worry that I could have an atopic pregnancy. So they checked me at six weeks. So this was uh, just a little after six weeks. I can't actually remember if you were there. I, I don't know. I think it was just me. Um, I went in thinking, okay, do the ultrasound, no big deal. And they said, well, there's no heartbeat. And hmm, the embryo looks odd. And I remember really well, they said it peanut shaped. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. And then no heartbeat. And they basically said, well, we're sorry. This is not a viable pregnancy. This is going to likely turn into a, med- uh, into a um, miscarriage or we could do a medical abortion um, before that happens, before you go through that. And so I, uh, with talking to the doctor, I decided that would maybe be the way to go and went home. Obviously, we talked about it. It felt sad. Um, but again, I had that sort of background noise of thinking, well, this makes sense. This makes sense, given the story I'd been telling myself for so long. And and then I, before they said, okay, come back in one more time for an ultrasound at eight weeks, I think it was, before they did the medical abortion. And, and to everyone's surprise, there was a heartbeat. And everybody said, oh, my gosh, this is so surprising. We never would expect to see this after we didn't at that other stage. And, and so, wow, we were back on. And, and then I was pregnant, and I was visibly pregnant, and we were going along. And I, I did want at 35 to do an amnio. And so we scheduled that. And, and I remember you coming with me, thinking that we would go in and, and knowing that it's a you know, it's a procedure, so I was glad you were going to be with me. Was that like 18 weeks? Uh-huh. Yeah. It was like 18 yeah. weeks. And ideally, um, you do it at 16, I believe. 16 is a good time. But we were out of town, and so it was 18 weeks. And we went in, and she started to do the ultrasound, and she very quickly stopped. And she turned to us, and she said, this is not a viable pregnancy. This is a child that has severe, is it congenital? Is it congenital issues? And she went on to describe what was going on, which was something called an emphalocele, which is basically like a sac outside of the abdomen where all the internal organs are. Now, now oftentimes it's not severe. Oftentimes it might be the stomach, the intestines, repairable upon birth. But what she saw is, from what I remember, the heart, the lungs, it was kind of all on the yeah, I think outside. It was all the abdominal organs I were was, outside. She, yeah. I think there was a heart def- some serious heart defect in all the intestines and digestive. Yeah, I do remember her saying the, the fetus. Yeah. I remember her saying this is this is much more severe than most, and I remember her saying um, that she she said well. You could go on with pregnancy, 
And the likelihood is that this, this fetus will die in utero. And at that point, we will have uh, a abortion. Or if, it, if the child survives to the end of pregnancy, then we would do a um, C-section and deliver this child. But it would then immediately roll into a series of, of surgeries. Uh, and she also said then, at most, perhaps it would survive a month, perhaps a few uh, in the ICU. But it, she, her uh, advice or her, her story was that it really would never, never survive past the ICU uh, if it survived to birth at all. I remember at that point, you know, we just, we both knew. We knew that we didn't want to do that to ourselves. We knew that we didn't want to do it to our little family of our one daughter. And we knew we didn't want to do it to this child. It just felt wrong for us. It felt like the wrong, wrong path. And so we we said, yeah, we want to go ahead and have an abortion, and, and what do we do? You know, that, that was the next step. What do we do? And luckily, there was something we could do. Luckily, there was someone in the city that we lived in, a place to go, an abortion clinic that performed late-term abortions. Um, and I remember feeling both really sad and, and also grateful that we had a way to not have it become a real tragedy, I think, a real tragedy in our lives. I don't remember ever feeling um, guilty or ashamed. I didn't feel those things. Um, I, I imagine some people do, and I, I can imagine that, but that wasn't the feeling I had. It was sad, and it was just felt so deeply personal for us to make this decision. And I'm so glad we had that opportunity, that ability. So we went in, we met with the clinic. They were, they were kind. I don't know how else they would be. It's such a hard and personal thing. I remember seeing the other women there in the waiting room. And, and I, I think the overall feeling is sad. Everybody seemed sad. The place felt sad um, because of how hard I don't, I, no one wants to be there. No one wants to go through this experience. And yet I'm so very grateful that we could. And I think this clinic specialized in second trimester abortions. I, I it was the it only did. place in the state, or one of two. So, mm -hmm. yeah, in that waiting room, I'm guessing we're only women, basically late term, mm -hmm. second well, trimester. I think that's. I think that's mm -hmm. right. I think you're right. I don't remember noticing, you know, where people were in their pregnancy. I just remember sort of this feeling of sadness there. And then we went in, and and we had the procedure, and I. Of course, I don't remember much about it. Um, I was luckily under uh, anesthesia of sorts, and I so I wasn't really present 
Um, I know you were, and that's a part of the story you experienced that that was without me. And I'm grateful for that because it's just, it's such a sad loss. It's such a sad, sad experience. And I know you had to be on the other end of that. I think if I hadn't been a med student then, it would have been a hundred times harder because actually the procedure got, got really, there were difficulties in you. Um, you kind of stopped breathing for a while and turned basically kind of blue and they had to sort of resuscitate you. And uh, I, I was scared, but again, I'd seen so many scary things in med school that just seemed kind of normal to see something scary. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> I'm never thinking, thinking, I'm so glad, whatever it was, third, fourth year med student then. Uh-huh. that I had seen a lot of hard stuff because otherwise I probably would have passed out. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And luckily I got to miss all that. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember waking up to all of you saying, breathe, breathe, breathe. There was a lot of uh, concern. I could feel the concern. I could feel the urgency around me of, of everyone, of you, of the doctor, of the assistant. It did feel urgent. Um, but I, I felt okay. I did. I didn't, I wasn't, a, um, you know, I wasn't in the urgency. I'd missed all that. I was breathing by the time I returned. So then I went back to our lives. So I went back to work where I had been visibly pregnant. People knew I was pregnant. And that was the one place where I didn't tell people what I had actually gone through in part because, like every story, I know people would judge it. Some people would, some people wouldn't, but I just didn't want to be vulnerable. And so I told people I'd had a miscarriage. Our friends, our family, we could tell all of them. They were all supportive, and I was so grateful for that. But work, you just never know. I, what did you do? I don't remember what you did. Yeah, I only told close friends and family. Oh. Um. I think, again, because you were so noticeably pregnant. Like yeah, you, everybody you were knew big and pregnant. pregnant. Even then, there was a lot of talk in the media about late-term abortions and the fact this was that we had to go to the specialty clinic. And, yeah, it just seemed like it was our own private thing. And I just didn't want... It felt sad enough. I didn't want people... Not that people would have said something, but it just, yeah, it felt well, very private. It does feel really private. And it, um, I wish it could continue to be very private. It really, it really worries me for people and for, for everyone, for all young women. So we, we didn't tell too many people, but we told enough. We told enough. And, and I don't, I, I felt like, you know, we were ready to, we were ready to try again after a couple months. And, and we were ready to see what our family would become. And one one piece of information that came after the abortion was that it that the child would have been a boy, and we had a daughter. and And I remember thinking, oh, huh, that that's an experience I don't know. And and I I just remember it struck me like, huh, okay. That makes it more real. It makes it more. It makes it more, more of a loss. But I also thought, okay, you know, it, this is what, 
this is sort of a part of what I expected, that I was going to have these troubles. And so on we went. And we did get pregnant again. We got pregnant actually really quickly. I think it was in probably within two months of our experience of uh, having an abortion. And again, I went in for an early ultrasound. And this time, it was a different shock. <laughs> not, not the shock of no heartbeat. It was the shock of two heartbeats. <laughs> so... That was the news of this six-week ultrasound, that we were having twins. I kind of blew us out of the water. We were scared. We were overwhelmed. We were about to move because you were looking at going to residency out of state. And we were, we were looking to move in the next few months. And, and wow, that felt like a lot. Um, but it was also exciting. It was scary. It was overwhelming. It was a lot of things. But I also, you know, there, I've always sort of thought, and this is just, this is a story I tell myself, but I always have kind of wondered, maybe wonder is a better word, if, if it is possible that that first child, the, the, the child that we lost, had a spirit, maybe it came back, you know, maybe it came back into my body, and then we had two. And so it's a story that is com- comforting. It's a story. It's a story I kind of, I think I wish everyone could imagine because there's so many possibilities we just don't know. But this is a story that says if you lose a child in whatever way, maybe that spirit can go on to a different mom or a different place or return to you as maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But it's a, it's a story I like. You know, I thought then, and I, I sometimes, when I'm thinking about this, I think how grateful I was and am that we weren't forced to carry to term a child who, had, who would have suffered, who would have died. How grateful I am that that wasn't the story of our family. And instead, we have a family with three amazing young women. Uh, one, one thing, <laughs> speaking of them... One thing about this story that I think surprised both of us and certainly surprised them is how long it took us to tell them. I, and I don't really know why. I, they were 16 and our oldest was 19. When you shared it with them, just kind of unprompted, and unexpectedly, when you all were driving past protesters and something, some conversation came up and you said, well, you know, we had a late-term abortion. And no, they did not know. They were all really surprised. Um, and I think a little shocked that we hadn't hadn't ever told them. And I think we were kind of a little shocked we hadn't ever told them too. But as I have thought about it, I thought, well, I think it's really because it's a hard story. It's a hard story to share with anyone. It's a hard story to share as parents because it really put us, it puts us in a position of being human, having to make hard decisions that, that some people will judge. 
Not them. I never thought they would. But these are the stories I think we all keep close, that we all struggle to share. And we were the same way. I, and I'm not, not sure why it took us so long. But once we did, I think it, I think it, felt, it felt important. And it felt a little late. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the longer you don't share some big thing, it just gets harder. Gets it gets harder. harder. Like when do you tell your kids X? And I just think we just thought, well, we'll tell them someday when they're older and ready. <laughs> when, when was that? They weren't ready. I just sprung it on them. Hey, right, by the way. Well, yeah. But they were old enough. Yeah. That's for sure. So yeah, yeah, it was it was. They were they were pretty darn surprised that we hadn't told them. Um, and yet, I also think part of it too is it's just so hard to imagine a different outcome, a different family for all of us. It's it's not anything in retrospect I can even imagine. You know, and I I think back when I was pregnant with the twins, and I can I. I remember just where I was, that where we were. I was driving with my youngest, and this was right before uh, we found out the gender of the twins. Because with twins, we said, let's find out the gender. We don't need that to be a surprise, too. And we were driving along, and she said in the car, I only want sisters, I only girls in my house. And I don't think that was excluding you. <laughs> but but sisters, she just wanted sisters. And I remember her saying that and I remember saying, well, we don't we don't have any control of that. We don't know what's going to what it's going to be and then really soon after we found out that they were girls. And and that's what happened. That that was our family and it's it's so hard to imagine anything else. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful too. Out of the darkness comes the light. And out of the darkness of our late-term abortion came the joyous rambunctiousness and brilliant light of our identical twin daughters. Sarah and Karen and Elizabeth, I think these three are such amazing women in their openness, their honesty, their vulnerability, and their willingness to speak up about one of the most taboo topics of our age. I hope their stories touched you as well.